Welcome to The Conversation. This podcast is produced by QSource as part of Medicare's quality improvement organization efforts to share information, educate clinical staff, and encourage improvement through best practices. Each episode discusses a topic that is timely and applicable to you, your staff, and your patients. In this episode, the conversation is about a new advanced care planning law that provides changes for how the process works. Quality Improvement Specialist Kathy Ray leads a conversation with Katie Hoam, Vice President of Pace Operations, a division of aging and in-home services of Northeast Indiana, and Chris Brenneman, Advanced Care Planning Manager, Respecting Choices ACP Facility at Parkview Health. Now, let's get this conversation started. We want to welcome back Katie and Chris to the conversation. QSource is excited to be able to finish up our series today um, on advanced care planning and moving forward into the new law that's taking effect in two days on July 1st and dive into that a little deeper and see what's going to be in our future and uh, talk about the hierarchy uh, with families and patients and that format of completing their advanced uh, care planning tool, uh, their objectives for healthcare. So, who would like to get us started? Katie, Chris? Um, Chris, you want to talk about the hierarchy? Sure. Um, so, prior to July 1st of 2018 in Indiana, if we needed someone to make a healthcare decision for an individual, we had a law in place that gave several next of kin family members equal decision-making authority. So parent, spouse, adult child, adult sibling, grandparent, and adult grandchild. At the point in time that law was in effect, um, 2017, I had eight people who would have had equal decision-making authority on my behalf from my newly 20 year minted 20 year old son um, to my 80 plus year old mother and everywhere in between and indiana law had not at that time defined so what if the decision for me was to put me on a ventilator or not and I have eight people and four of them say yes and four of them say no, or seven of them say yes and one of them says no. How do we decide who we honor as representative of my wishes? We decided that that didn't continue to make a lot of sense, um, actually created more challenges than offering of solutions. And many times in healthcare entities resulted in ethics committee referrals. Who got to make a decision if someone was no longer capable of making their own decision? On July 1st, 2018, we actually created a healthcare decision making hierarchy that went into effect and it identified a step process on who has the authority to make decisions for you. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, we should always look to see, is there any legal documentation appointing a healthcare representative or a healthcare power of attorney? 
if that documentation doesn't exist or that person doesn't exist, then we start down the list. Our next person we would look toward is a court appointed guardian. So we'd want to see if there was any guardianship papers appointing someone to make decisions. Then we would proceed down the family. After a spouse would be your adult child or adult children, your parent or parents, an adult sibling, then a grandparent or grandparents, an adult grandchild. So those were on the original listing. Then they added in nearest other relatives. So you think of people who don't have immediate family members, but perhaps they have nieces or nephews or cousins or aunts or uncles. They're allowed on the decision-making hierarchy after your immediate family. An adult friend. And this part of Indiana code actually defined what a friend is. And that is someone who really has regular contact with you and is familiar with what's important to you, your activities, your beliefs, that type of thing. And then the 10th on the list would be a religious superior if you're a member of a religious <clears throat> excuse me, a religious superior if you are a member of a religious order. So as a healthcare provider, you come into the hospital, I don't find any documents for you, then I'm going to look for family in the order listed. With the hierarchy, if there are multiple people on one level, so with children, I have three children, the majority would rule. Um, when it came to making a decision for me. So if there's multiple people on that same level, the majority rules. Indiana law on July 1st of 2018 also set up a couple provisions of who can't provide healthcare consent, even if they fall on that hierarchy. So if you are legally separated or have filed for dissolution of your marriage, then that spouse is not high on your decision-making authority list. An individual who is subject to a protective order to avoid contact with you cannot be sought out to make decisions for you on the healthcare hierarchy. And then an individual who has a pending criminal charge against you in which you are the alleged victim, they cannot be your healthcare consent hierarchy decision maker. So it really created the opportunity for us to have people to turn to in a somewhat organized fashion. Well, I think the message that I, I've always wanted to get across with the hierarchy is I think when that law was passed, a lot of people thought, Okay, we've got a solution to the, you know, to healthcare consent. Um, and so, you know, I think there was some question of, well, if there's this hierarchy in place, do I still need to appoint a healthcare representative? And I think the important thing to remember is that if there's anybody on that list that you don't want making decisions, then 
absolutely, you you know, you need to be appointing a spokesperson. Um, so that's kind of the first point of that is that, you know, it's not a, if you, if what if you you and your spouse are in an accident together, it's going to go to the next person in that hierarchy. If they can't get a hold of that person, it's going to go to the next person in the hierarchy. So just if there's anybody you don't want involved in healthcare decision-making, uh, you know, it's really important that you appoint somebody in a, you know, through a formal document. But the other piece of that is appointing somebody um, through a formal document who's appropriate to be your healthcare representative. And so I think of, you know, there are instances where, you know, they might get to somebody in that hierarchy and that person's like, oh, no, I, I'm not interested in doing that. Or they find a lot of um, duress in making these types of decisions, or maybe the medical, you know, the medical decision making is is it's just outside of their wheelhouse. It's just not something they're comfortable with. So that's the other piece of kind of who is is making healthcare decisions for somebody else is not only are they just you know somebody that legally is able to, but are they the right person to do so? And the hierarchy doesn't solve that piece. So. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Katie. This is Chris yeah. again, and you highlighted where I was trying to go and I <laughs> forgot. Um, and, but I, I have the perfect example, I believe, of where the hierarchy wasn't going to meet an individual's need. So we offer a monthly advanced care planning group. People can sign on. We're doing it via Zoom meetings right now and participate in a group ACP conversation. And our first group just happened to be a group of young adults. We didn't intend it to be that way. It just happened to be people 29 and under, so 18 to 29. And a 19-year-old in the group actually chose to complete appointment of a healthcare representative because she was raised by her father. Her mother was not involved in her life, but the way the hierarchy is, is if she ended up in the hospital, both of her parents would have equal decision-making authority. She didn't want that to happen. She didn't want her mom to have the ability to make healthcare decisions. And so she created a healthcare representative form appointing her father so that her father would be the one to make decisions and really intentionally excluding her mother, even though the hierarchy would have put them on the same level. Wow, that's a very good example. I didn't even think about divorced parents and who's raising who when a lot of folks share some responsibility, but you're right, it's up to that individual. And if there's an exception to the rule, then we need to get it documented. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think our society, this is Chris, of of having fractured family dynamics mm -hmm. does really increase the value of being intentional about choosing the right person. You know, that person who's willing to have these conversations with you, who's good in a crisis situation, who you know would make the decision you would make for yourself if you were able in that moment, instead mm -hmm. of making the decision that they think they should make for you. Um, and being really clear about that intentionality of choosing the right person. I had one physician describe choosing your healthcare representative that you enter into a covenant together 
And I appreciated that because I think that so elevated the almost sacredness of choosing someone to be responsible for making critical, perhaps life-changing decisions for you when you're unable to make those decisions for yourself. Mm -hmm. I think that what you're describing there, Chris, is the reason why I often talk to people about thinking outside the box. Uh, you know, think outside of the maybe the typical people that we think to be our healthcare representatives, our spouse, the the eldest child, you know, always seems to to be tapped for that role. Uh, and they might not be the right person. I can think of a lot of clients I've worked with over the years where their friends or their neighbor have become somebody very close, you know, who is closely caring for them on a daily basis. And so, you know, somebody like that might be more appropriate to be at the front lines of some of these decisions because they know what the day to day looks like. Um, and it's, you know, it's hard to make decisions for somebody when, you know, you're seeing them periodically. Uh, so it doesn't mean that those people aren't the right. They might be fine. But it's just, you know, really think about it. And I think a lot of times we we don't because, again, we're planning for these, you know, instances that we hope never happen. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's it's just it's really important that it's the right person um, to to do something that can be so so difficult. So yeah, and so. this is Chris, and I would say the other piece to that is making sure someone knows that you've appointed them as your healthcare <laughs> representative. Yes, um, I will tell you in my experience in working in healthcare, a long long time, I have called people and said. Hey, I see that you're Katie's healthcare representative and she's here in the hospital. And the person responds, like, What? I, what's a healthcare representative? I didn't know I was supposed to make healthcare decisions for her. Um, wow. So, I mean, really asking that person, because some states require a healthcare representative to actually sign the advance directive, kind of accepting that authority. But in Indiana, we don't have that on our healthcare representative appointment. So technically, if you don't reach out to tell someone you name them, they could get that surprise call and not know that you've completed legal valid paperwork appointing them, um, but you had no idea that the, that paperwork existed. And I, I mean, Chris, you're absolutely right. I've I've run into that uh, many times where the person didn't know, and and I would just I know we want to talk about the bill um, as well in this podcast, but I would emphasize if you change it, maybe letting the person who used to be appointed know that you changed it if mm -hmm. appropriate, because um, mm -hmm. we run into that where you have maybe siblings who one person thought they were appointed and then it's been switched to the other one. And, you know, you want to talk about family dynamics coming into play, um, mm -hmm. you know, that that certainly highlights um, those dynamics and makes it really difficult um, when it, you know, if just a conversation is happening ahead of time, um, you know, maybe could have been avoided. Maybe again, not always, but maybe. So quick question, knowing now that families do have rights and you're approached at church and someone says, you know, I do make decisions for my wife, but I don't have it documented. I don't have it in a healthcare representative or a healthcare rep format. 
do you encourage them to make to take the next step and get it documented on a form a legal form that costs money that they may not have or is it a, are they still okay to fill out or maybe just write it down on a piece of paper and have it available i i don't i i get lost sometimes when families say to me but I shouldn't have to go to an attorney. I shouldn't have to go to the bank and get it notarized. I'm her husband or I'm, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, and Chris and I are both, we're shaking our heads. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, um, you know, absolutely documented. I, I mean, I, I can't stress the importance of that en enough with or without the hierarchy in place. Um, and, you know, I, there are free tools out there, the, yeah. the, you know, Indiana State Department of Health, their Advanced yes. Directives Resource Center, that healthcare representative form is incredibly simple to fill out. And with the new law that's coming, you have the option of two witnesses or a notary. Uh, oh. And so, you know, typically we can find two kind of neutral people, whether it's neighbors or, you know, whoever oh, nice. to come over and sign off on a document. But 100 um, percent, you know, I would encourage somebody to do so. And that's just so there's no question about it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think the thing for people to consider, too, with a spouse especially, is who's the backup. Uh, you know, I can't tell you how many, um, you know, power of attorney documents I've come across in long-term care where the spouse is no longer living. And mm -hmm. that is who is appointed to do, a lot of times it was financial and medical decision-making. And, you know, so who's the backup in those instances as well? And so as a couple having that conversation of, okay, we're each other's person, but if something happens to one of us, you know, who's going to be kind of that secondary person and, and the form, there are free forms available okay. without, you know, without an attorney that, um, okay. that they could complete. And they're still, and they're still recognized and usable. You know, there's a lot of myths out there that you have to have it. It has to go through an attorney. I've heard that so many times from different family members. And I'll be honest, there are separate organizations like churches that have these um, educational sessions in their congregations and they bring in outside sources. So the attorney who's presenting has a stake in the game, right? Yeah. Is not that objective person and is is wanting them to use their services that cost fees. And then you've got me and the other healthcare ministry members in the background going, but no, <laughs> there are free resources available. You do not have to go through and use, you know, your social security money that you're living on to go to an attorney. So I understand it's individual cases, but I also, you know, wanted to just emphasize there are free opportunities out there. So 100%. Yeah. Thank you. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you. So if we move into the conversation about the actual law, um, and I, I'm sure it's pretty lengthy, what can we walk away from today with just a basic understanding of what's getting ready to change? Yeah, so this is Katie. I, I have just highlights that we'll, we'll hit on. Okay. Um, I will say that the indianapost.org website will have tools available for folks here in hopefully a couple of weeks. Um, that that can be referenced in regards to the new bill change. Um, but there, there are a couple components that are important to, to note. Um, so the first one uh, is this, this bill allows for flexibility in your healthcare decisions. So in the past, um, you know, there was certain statutory language that had to be on every, you know, every living will document or every document to be valid. 
and that no longer stands. So there's just flexibility to use five wishes as we've talked about, to use prepare for your care, um, to write your wishes on a cocktail napkin and sign it with two witnesses if you want to, you know, which exactly kind of as you were talking about, Kathy, just eliminating those barriers for people so that they can have a document that they feel is is representative of, of who they are and the decisions that they, they wish to make. Um, the other piece is they, you know, we're updating the the signature requirements, which is what we've talked about. So as opposed to, it, we used to have a healthcare representative form and a power of attorney document. I think people are very familiar with that kind of that power of attorney document. This bill would make them one and the same. So it's a healthcare representative form, and then you have the option to have two witness signatures or a notary, but it's appointing a healthcare representative. So we kind of get outside of that. Um, does a power of attorney have more clout than a healthcare representative? It's just, it's a spokesperson. It's a person to, to represent um, on your behalf. Uh, the other really important parts, which we talked about in the, the podcast related to advanced care planning and COVID, is just updating the signature requirements um, to allow for some electronic methods to be used, which was something we saw um, in, the, in the midst of COVID. So using a video, um, you know, FaceTime or Zoom or something like that, where the witnesses or the notary could visibly see the person signing the document and would be able to sign the document that way. Um, the use of using maybe separate copies to for each party to sign on a video chat and can, you know, signing off at the same time. Um, and then also using just a phone call, because obviously some people don't have access to FaceTime and Zoom and all these different tools. So just trying to eliminate some of those barriers that I know really um, became problematic for nursing facilities in the, in the midst of the pandemic. So that that's a huge part of this bill. Um, I want to make sure I don't miss anything else. What am I missing, Chris? What else was I? Yeah, so I would say, Katie, the thing that um, resonates with me is that in very clear black and white language, this bill, this law that goes to an effect two days, clearly states that your health care representative can only make decisions that are consistent with your previously either explicitly or implicitly expressed wishes. So no longer can we follow a family who says, mom said she never wanted to be intubated, but I'm not ready to let her go. Let's intubate her. Um, if we know previously expressed wishes, the healthcare representative or even the hierarchy person needs to make decisions consistent with that. And if they don't know the patient's wishes, then they need to make decisions in the patient's best interest. So it couldn't be a scenario where someone says, let's keep, uh, I don't know, this is going to be crass, to, but understandable. Let's keep mom alive until the first of the month when her pension check comes. Um, you know, we, that's only four days from now where we could honestly be making mom comfortable now instead of waiting for that. So it very clearly states that it needs to be consistent with previously expressed wishes and needs to be representative of that individual's best interest. 
I would agree, Chris. Uh, this is Katie. I think that's a huge clarification in the law that's that's been missing um, previously, and it gives you know healthcare practitioners a lot more to kind of stand on if they're just not sure about the decisions that are being made. Um, I, I won't get into all of the details, but there are a lot of opt-in, opt-out features of this of of creating an advanced directive through this bill. So one of the things um, that I can provide as an example is that if you don't opt out in your advanced directive, then this healthcare representative that's now been created can apply for public benefits on your behalf. Um, I know for a lot of individuals, that's a benefit because it kind of does it in one swoop to allow this person who's going to make healthcare decisions, you know, they can now access your medical records, they could sign a post form, for instance, and then they can apply for those public benefits. But you can also opt out of that um, and you can say, you know, I don't want this role to include, you know, that particular um, characteristic. So, uh, you know, those are for individuals who are really looking at crafting um, an advanced directive based on this new law, that would be something to do some research on, kind of the opt-in, out, opt-out features, um, okay. because they they tried to make the, the role, I think, a lot more robust and meaningful, um, but there might be instances where somebody doesn't want some of the things that come, come with that, so. Okay, okay, good. I think the only other thing I would add in regards to the bill, and we've talked a little bit about when it's effective and not effective. So mm -hmm. the, the law goes into effect July 1st of 2021. Mm -hmm. um, there is, you know, what they're calling a, a grace period in that time. So as of July 1st, you know, 2021, we can begin to create these new advanced directives but we're not required to. So if somebody is still utilizing a previous document, and Chris, please chime in here, because I know this is where it gets a little mug, a little mucky. Um, if somebody is has created a document from one of the old forms between now and January 1st of 2023, that document would still be valid. Um, and any documents created prior to January 1st, 2023 would be valid starting January 1st of uh, 2023, then we would all need to be utilizing the updated um, advanced directive requirements. Okay. So there is a period of time for people to kind of figure out how this is going to work and what these documents yeah. might look like. There's also, um, you know, we're not making people go back and redo things that they might have done previously. So. Okay. All right. Well, we want to thank both of you so much. You've spent a great deal of your time with us in sharing all of this information and getting it out to our communities, to our partners, to our stakeholders, our providers. And we look forward to having you both back. Um, we wanna continue this conversation as we learn more, as our communities have questions, we wanna be able to use you as our resource and um, just can't thank you enough for your dedication and your service work to this mission. So thank you so much. Thank you for joining the conversation. If you found this conversation of interest, we encourage you to join the conversation by visiting us online at qsource.org slash conversation podcast. The conversation was produced by QSource, the Quality Innovation Network, Quality Improvement Organization for Indiana, under a contract with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Content does not necessarily reflect CMS policy.